So the answer that Acts 6 gives is yes. The church is for non-apostles. In fact, though the apostles are certainly foundational and do a lot right at the beginning, the fact of the matter is most of them drop out. And we're left toward the second half of Acts with just Peter and Paul. And mostly just Paul. And ordinary Christians who do the work of ministry according to the gifts and the body that God has given them. So Acts 6. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And then turn over to chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your assistance. Illumine our minds to understand your word. Free our hearts from distraction, from the other thoughts that so easily come crowding in, and while they may leave our bodies in church, take our thoughts to the four corners of the earth, Father, focus our attention on what you have to say to us, that we may honor and glorify you by listening to your word and worshiping you. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know that the book of Acts is about the kingdom. Luke starts and ends the book. He brackets it with references to the kingdom of God. And in between, as he describes the growth and prosperity of the church, he's describing what the kingdom is doing, how the kingdom is doing, how the kingdom 
progresses. All of this is in the service of telling Theophilus the certainty of the kingdom. The things you've been taught, Theophilus, are really so. Jesus really is reigning. So how does this chapter fit into this? Well, Luke is showing us the reign of Christ is manifested in those who are not apostles. Ordinary church members also submit to the reign of Christ. The kingdom of God is present in the God-fearing activities of the ordinary believer. Your ordinary Christian walk is an expression of a contribution to the kingdom of God. Well, that's not everything that's in these chapters, obviously. We're going to spend about five more sermons looking at the rest of 6 and 7. But the theme I want to look at today is Luke's profiles of these ordinary individuals within the church in whom Christ's reign is manifested. The first, uh, first set of these, the one that comes up immediately in chapter 6, is the widows. This church is unique in that among all the churches I've attended, we don't have any members who are widows. Now, the Lord might call us to do widow ministry at some point in the future. Right now, he hasn't sent any widows into our body for us to care for. You probably have some in your family, certainly among your friends and other churches you've been a part of. We all know widows. What's the deal with being a widow? Well, certainly in those days, legal disabilities and so on, being a widow was tough. If you're a woman who can't own property, who doesn't get your husband's social security check, then you are very needy and dependent. And the church already, right, we're talking maybe six months after the ascension, the church is already organized and caring for widows on a daily basis. That's pretty impressive. The early church said, we value our widows, we care for our widows, and we want to make sure our widows are not neglected. This is a core part of the church's identity. This is the group that Luke chooses to start with when he takes the spotlight off the apostles and says, who else is active in the church? Where else is the kingdom of God expressed? Oh, it's expressed here. And women who have lost their spouse and are continuing to live for Christ now as a newly single person. So Luke describes these widows and he, he emphasizes four things about them. The first is that they're supported by the church. There's some kind of daily distribution, as we've said, likely of food that these widows participate in. Paul actually gives qualifications in 1 Timothy 5 for who can be allowed to be supported by the church. It's pretty fascinating. These qualifications have had a rocky history in Christian circles because they're really steep. Here's what he says, 1 Timothy 5, 3, Honor widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So, right, the first filter. 
If the widow has children or grandchildren, they need to be taken care of her. Second filter. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. These things command that they may be blameless. So church is especially focused on godly widows. Widows who say, oh, my husband is dead. I can do all the fun things that I never got a chance to do while he was around. And all the sinful things that I couldn't do while he was around. Paul says, let's not support those widows. He goes on, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. People, take care of your home and family. Now, here's the qualifications. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. She has been, and then he gives more. If she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Therefore I desire that younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, and so on. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Again, these qualifications are steep. Luke doesn't go into all of that. He simply says, there were some widows who fit what Paul is saying. They're older, they've lived a godly life, and now they are truly indigent with nobody to provide for them. I looked into this a couple of years ago, and there's actually a statutory definition of indigency in various states. I read like one state, you are indigent if you have less than $12.50. So Paul doesn't say that exactly, but here's his qualifications for who can be supported. And his emphasis throughout is families, you need to be caring for your widows first and foremost so that the church can care for those who are really widows. I mentioned being in the Sunnyvale church, the pastor there, when people would call that church and say, do you help with rent? Do you buy bus tickets? He would actually read them 1 Timothy 5 and say, does this describe you? That's who the church cares for. But anyway, Luke doesn't, again, get into all of that. It's important to go to 1 Timothy 5 and hear those qualifications. But what is Luke's overall point? Neediness is a ministry in the body. Being over 60, having no children or grandchildren, having no means of support, that's actually a gift that God calls some of us to bring into the church. It's not something to be ashamed of. Not something to say, I can't believe God has cursed me like this. What's the message? No, that's something that properly belongs in the church. That's just who the church is for. We love widows. We love those who are alone and have no family and no income. That should be in our DNA. 
Now, of course, when there's nobody like that in our church, it's easy for us to say we love those people. It's harder when you actually have to meet the needs on a daily basis. Luke says right off the bat, this is what the church does. Its goal is to support widows. And then he goes on and immediately admits that the church failed. At least there was an accusation of failure. There was a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now Luke never says specifically whether this murmuring was correct. But he strongly implies that there was something to it because the apostles go ahead and solve the problem. If there was no problem, they probably wouldn't have needed to solve it. Another lesson for the church. Ordinary people in the church may be called to be whistleblowers. To say, something isn't right here. The widow ministry is being run incorrectly. Certain people who can't speak Hebrew aren't getting their food every day. Now the world today claims to be enamored of whistleblowers. They learned that from the church. It was the church that originally put in its sacred text things like this, where ordinary people said, something's not right here. This lady speaks Greek and she's being neglected by the Hebrew speakers who administer the widow program. And she's not the only one. So if you say, something is majorly wrong here. I see X problem in the church. I'm going to go talk to my pastor. I'm going to go talk to my elders. What do you foresee happening when you do that? Do you see an admission of wrongdoing and real steps being taken immediately to correct the problem? Or do you imagine obfuscation, denial, stonewalling, there's no problem. Be quiet and go away. You're a disgrace to the church. When these whistleblowers, the murmurers, whoever they were, stood up and said, there's a problem, they got to watch the powers that be take real steps to correct the abuse. And then we wonder why the church multiplied and priests became obedient to the faith. The leadership was responsive to complaints. So the widows were defended by those close to them. Yes, the church should not have scandals and abuses, but the church will have scandals and abuses. You and I can either choose to do something and say something and rectify the situation, or we can choose to be quiet and pretend there's nothing wrong. Luke is clearly telling us which approach is the right way to do it. And when these people, the whistleblowers, spoke up, the widows were relieved. It's the call of the church. Provide for the widows. There are qualifications, but if those qualifications are met, there should be no question, no ifs, ands, or buts about whether we're going to take care of this person in our midst. And the second group that Luke profiles is the whole congregation. Verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude. Now that comes perilously close to making it sound like the congregation is a bunch of yes men. 
Oh, the leadership proposed something? We all like it. Now, ideally, yeah, that's what will happen. That the leadership and the congregation are on the same page and that when the leaders say, let's do this, everyone says, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's do that. But Luke shows us not only that the congregation is pleased with the apostles' leadership, but also that the congregation functions as nominators. They chose Stephen, Philip, and so on. It's part of the congregation's job to select their leaders. No doubt most of you have been part of or had friends who were part of churches that don't let the congregation nominate or choose officers. The church is run by a self-appointed oligarchy that picks its own successors. That's not the vision that Luke puts before us. A man who comes forward for leadership in the church has to be someone that the entire congregation can pick out of a lineup and say, yeah, he should be our leader. There should not be a time when there's somebody up here taking officer vows and you're sitting out there saying, him? How did this happen? I don't get it. The congregation has a role of nominating, choosing its own leaders. Philip also, Philip, Luke also profiles Stephen. Obviously, Stephen is the main character in chapters 6 through 7. What's the first thing we know about him? Well, that he's an ordinary Christian. He's not an apostle. He was a nobody until the congregation grabbed him and said, you, you can run the widow program. You will be good at that. He's not an apostle. He's not Peter and John. He hadn't been with Jesus from the beginning, like Matthias. Rather, he is just an ordinary Christian. But he's also this wonder worker. Verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, most of us probably won't do great wonders and signs in terms of physical manifestations. But Luke is clearly saying that ordinary Christians, people who aren't apostles, can have the power of the Spirit flowing through them to do amazing things. Those things that we look for today, as I've said many times, are not primarily turning water into wine or raising the dead. They're primarily moral and spiritual in nature. Taking a person with a rotten attitude and changing him into a man with a good attitude. Taking someone with a drinking problem and sobering him up. Taking someone who's a terrible dad, making him a good dad. That's the kind of wonder and sign that we should expect to see in the church today. And that comes about through discipleship and testimony by ordinary Christians. There's plenty of role in the church for those who are not apostles. Stephen is also an apologist. We read a little bit of chapter 7 last week. We'll read more of it next week. Stephen was defending the faith, arguing with the people from this synagogue of the freedmen. An apologist doesn't mean somebody who's good at saying, 
I'm sorry. Apologist in its Christian use means someone who's good at saying, this is what I believe. Here's the reality. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he came to do. Here's why I believe what I believe. Every Christian is called at some level to defend their faith. It's not an office in the church. It's something that belongs to the ordinary Christian. Now, typically, our favorite thing to do with this is to learn you know, the, first, the first most basic principles of what we believe and then kind of want to hand it over to an expert if we run into somebody who knows a little more. I see this all the time. My brothers like to argue with their Baptist cousin about baptism. And they, my brothers chime off in a Presbyterian way and then the Baptist cousin responds, it's dumb to baptize babies. And then my brothers say something else. And then the cousin says, well, you would have to ask my pastor about that. We all like to do that. Ooh, I can't answer that question. I need to go find a William Lane Craig. I need to go find an R.C. Sproul. I need to go find somebody who could answer that question. And yes, there is definitely a place for having champions. But there's also a place, and a much bigger place, for knowing what you believe and being able to say, to your own satisfaction, why you believe it. Stephen obviously had been studying this stuff for quite a while before he ever became a widow administrator. And he is able to argue with them to the point where they're ready to kill him because he's full of two things, wisdom and the Holy Spirit. He feared God, and so he learned to defend his faith. He feared God, and he, therefore he also learned history. The level of detail that he gives off the cuff is impressive. He gets a few little details wrong in chapter 7, and it's so funny how the commentators all pounce on it. He says that Abraham was buried in Shechem. Right? Chapter 7, verse 16. They were laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Actually, Jacob bought that tomb. All of you knew that, right? But Stephen is able to give 50-some verses of the history of Israel that's just about correct in every detail. Totally off the cuff. He's just been summoned to the courtroom and the high priest says, Is that so? And Stephen shows that he knows the Bible inside out. Do you have some level of grasp of church history. That's the calling of the ordinary Christian. You can't speak with any kind of authority about where the church is now unless you know where the church has been. If you think church history started with the birth of Billy Graham, then you will be very confused about why the church looks and acts like it does. Church history starts, as Stephen does, begins it, more or less with Abraham. Now, obviously, Stephen is exceptional in one sense as a historian, as an apologist, as a deacon or widow administrator. But actually, his final action is how he's not exceptional. 
See, the most welcoming place of honor in the church is martyrdom. You don't have to be able to speak in public. You don't have to have a really sharp mind, a philosophical vocabulary, a command of church history, a knowledge of the scriptures. In order to be a martyr, all you have to have is faith in Jesus. Yes, I mean, clearly Stephen is the first martyr in the book of Acts, and his what gets him there, the circumstances are quite exceptional. And Luke gives it a lot of space. But that's not to suggest that only exceptional people can be martyrs. Not every Christian can be church treasurer, accompanist, Sunday school teacher, nursery worker, pastor. And I think most of us are okay with that. We all know that there are various roles in the body, but every Christian can be a martyr. We hope it doesn't come to that. But we understand that if it does, the most honored place in the church is open to anyone of any age, any sex, any marital status, any financial status, or ability to learn, disabled or not. So don't say, oh, I'm a woman, I can't be a pastor, I'm forever dishonored in the church. Pastor, apostle, those are not the most honorable offices and honorable places. We serve a crucified Messiah. Dying for Jesus is the most honored thing you can do. Finally, the last servant that Luke profiles is Philip. Philip, too, is an ordinary Christian. Luke tells us nothing about him, except that he was a widow administrator, and later in chapter 21, he tells us that he had four daughters who prophesied. Probably didn't have the four daughters yet at this point. He's just an ordinary Christian. And yet, he's a missionary. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Philip knew that. Philip didn't care about that because he cared more about Jesus and the message of Jesus. So he went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Ordinary Christian can be a missionary. Our denomination has a goal over the next five years that 1% of our membership, so right around 3,300 people, will go into long-term missionary service. Pretty cool goal. Sounds like it's not a lot, and yet it is a lot. To just ask 1% of a church to go to the mission field, but that's what Philip does. He's also an evangelist, as Luke calls him later. Yes, it's a special calling, but at the same time, he's not an apostle. He's an ordinary Christian used in an extraordinary way. Finally, the others... 8, 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They're not apostles. They're not named. They don't stand out. 
for anything except the fact that they share the good news wherever they go. So you're not an apostle. So you're not an elder. So you're not a pastor. The church is still yours and for you. You have a role in the body. Don't neglect it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Son went up on high, led captivity captive, gave gifts to men. That he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And that he gave many more saints to do the work of ministry and edify the body of Christ. That he gave grace to each one of us. That he called each one of us to do our part in building up the body. So we thank you, Lord, for the widows that you have called into your broader church. We ask your blessing on them. We pray that you would mobilize your church to minister to the widows in its midst. Lord, we thank you for the whole congregation and its role in nominating and listening to the apostles. We thank you for those who stand out for their ministry, men like Stephen and Philip. We thank you much more for the anonymous Christians who have done the bulk of the grunt work throughout the history of your church and will continue to do it. Help us to be those people, Father. To have as our goal to be faithful in the place you've called us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.